0: The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let's pray together. Lord, it's our prayer that you would open our eyes to show us the wonders of yourself, who you are like, and we know that we See what you are like. We learn what you are like fundamentally in your word. And so as we come now and open your word to hear its truth, I pray that it will be impressed upon all of our hearts. It's my prayer that this church's love will abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they can approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of your name. Make that happen, Lord, I pray, by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, church. Please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to Philippians chapter 1. We're continuing our study through our book of Philippians. We're beginning in verse 9 this morning. Last week, I mentioned how salvation has a past, present, and future reality, meaning God saves a person at some point in the past, God saves the person throughout his or her life, and God ultimately saves the person for all eternity. And we see all three of those realities, past, present, and future, in verses 3 through 11 of chapter 1. Last week's sermon covered verses 3 through 8, and this week is part 2 of that, covering verse 9 through 11. Last week we saw the realities of salvation of past and future, So, for example, in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1, we see Paul use language like uh, first day and that God began a work of salvation, language of what he has done in history with these Philippi believers who were saved. We see the past reality of salvation in verses like Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 that says, for by grace you have been saved, past tense. We also see the future reality of salvation last week when we looked at Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 where it said, and he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So salvation has happened and here's a promise that God will complete that salvation ultimately. So the encouraging truth that we focused on last week was the God who gave you salvation is the God who ultimately secures that for you for all eternity. If you are truly in Christ, you can rest easy that God will persevere you in the salvation that he has given to you and he will not allow you to lose it. God will persevere you in your faith. The the salvation that he has started, he will sustain. God eternally secures his children and nothing, as we saw last week, nothing can snatch you out of the hand of God or separate you from his love. And you need to hear me say that plainly this morning that nothing in all of earth can snatch you from the hand of the Lord if you are truly his. You you need to hear me say that plainly because you may be tempted to think otherwise by what Paul will say in the text today. God will persevere the true believer, period. But... The Bible also speaks of a present salvation that's ongoing and absolutely necessary. 1 Corinthians 1 18, we hear of this salvation. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but listen to this, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You may think, Well, wait a minute, I, I thought we were already saved. But here the language seems to speak that we who are being saved, like it's a progression, like it's an ongoing reality. And what is that all about? Well, that's the focus of the text today, the the focus of the sermon. The theological word for this is sanctification. Sanctification being God's work where he progressively makes the believer more and more like Jesus. Jesus. It is an absolute necessary work for salvation. So my question for you as we consider the text this morning, if God has given you salvation in the past and if God has eternally secured your salvation for all of eternity, what value does any of your life have right now? Actions and decisions Desires and temptations. Where does, where does all of that fit in between? the point of when you were saved, to point of when God securely fastens you for all of eternity? What happens in the in-between? Does it even matter? And this is a sensitive subject. I, I realize that. It's sensitive because of the personal nature of the subject. In other words, if we get out of the theoretical questions. To the questions of where this sermon will ultimately hit home, thinking of things like we all know someone who at some point in their life has professed faith in Christ. Whether they were young or another time in their, their life, they professed faith in Christ. We all know someone who has done that and has since that lived a life that has completely dishonored the Lord. Or maybe they haven't been like a, an open agnostic or an atheist. Maybe they've just been a, a nominal Christian who, who once made a profession, but since then they've never grown in their faith. They, they, they show no true desires for the Lord. They, they just live a, a nominal life where there's no delight in Him. There's no submission to Him. What do we do with that person? Are, are they a Christian Christian? can they lose salvation? Do they have salvation? Last week was very encouraging, I hope, to you as we consider the truth that God who saves you in the past eternally secures you for the future. This particular text this week fills in the in-between for us. And it is entirely possible that there are some that I encouraged last week with the truth of eternal salvation, so eternal security in Christ. That this week is eternal. It is eti- entirely possible that I will infuriate with the truth of personal holiness in salvation. So here's the main. Here's the main point of the text, and then we're going to read the text and then walk through it. Main point is this. True Christians grow in Christlikeness in order to honor God to be pure and blameless before Christ. So I'll say that again. True Christians grow in Christlikeness in order to honor God to be pure and blameless before Christ. So you grow in order to honor to be pure and blameless. So let's look at the text. Philippians chapter 1 beginning in verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So in a couple of weeks, my family and I, were are going to be going on vacation to Virginia. It's about a seven-hour trip and uh, looking forward to it. And already, my children have already been asking, how long before we leave? How many days left now before we go, Dad? And most of you can probably relate to what I'm about to say. So, the morning finally arrives. You leave to go on vacation. You get everything packed up. Make sure everyone uses the restroom for the final time. Get everyone in the car. You pack up everything you go over your checklist you set the GPS and you're off well i'm fully expecting as soon as i pull out of the driveway for the question to come from the back of the van mom how many minutes until we get there 7 hours honey well how many minutes is that and then when you make your first turn are are we there No. Well, how much longer? And then a few miles down the road, are we there? Like, you you know, this is what kids do. And see, in my kids' eyes, all that matters is we're going on vacation and we're going to enjoy it when we get there. They have no category to process the journey that must take place for us to get there. To them, in their mind, somehow we must just teleport ourselves there and have fun. It's not at all surprising when the question comes, Mom, I, I, I thought you said we were going on vacation. Well, we are. Well, why is it taking so long? There's a whole group of people not expecting the journey of the Christian life. Not anticipating the long road one must walk to eternal life. The, for these people, any commands from Scripture for holiness or for growth and godliness, uh, they're just arbitrary. So let's go on vacation and let's, let's get there. Let's get saved and let's be in heaven forever. Don't worry about the in-between. They go from decision for Christ to eternity for Christ with neglecting the means by which God uses to bring us there. And scripture is clear, God ordains our salvation, and God ordains our security in salvation, but scripture is also clear that God ordains the means of sanctification that brings us from point A to point Z, and we absolutely cannot skip over that. Growing in Christlikeness is necessary for ultimate salvation. True Christians grow in Christlikeness in order to honor God, to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ i want to show you that in the text. It doesn't matter a hill of beans what I say unless it comes from the Word. First, true Christians grow in Christlikeness. And we're going to build on that statement. There's three points. We're going to build on that statement each time. So don't put a period after that. Leave it open. First, true Christians grow in Christlikeness. We see this in verse 9. Look in your text. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Isn't it interesting what Paul prays for the believers here? I mean, he just said verses up from here, what we talked about last week, that they are, they are saved and God secures salvation for them. And so what would we now expect Paul to say? Does it even matter what he says? for many it, it it doesn't matter what Paul says next many I mean many would never admit it but functionally many live their lives with this view in mind Paul says I'm saved and Paul says that I cannot lose my salvation and so it doesn't really matter what happens in between it doesn't matter how I live my life how I live my life has no consequence of, uh, on my salvation well it does matter the same Paul that wrote of salvation and of the salvation that is secured for eternity now writes of the necessity to grow that must happen for the, believer, for the believer in order to prove that such salvation is genuine and pure. And so Paul prays, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And notice that Paul writes this in such a way that love is highlighted in the text. So, so that your love may abound with knowledge and all discernment. Now why would Paul highlight love? Why is it that believers should be growing more and more in love specifically? Well listen to what, listen what Jesus said in John chapter 13 verse 35. This is Jesus speaking. He says... By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So love is the supreme mark for the Christian. Love for God first and love for your neighbor second. And Jesus says, how will people know that you're really my disciples? Because you pray to prayer when you're six. no. How will people know that you're really my disciples? Because you walked the aisle at twelve, or because you asked Jesus into your heart at twenty? No. How will people know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another, like in the present moment? Well, what is love? Well, that's a loaded question, depending upon who you ask, especially in today's, you know, ooey-gooey, fairy tale, Disneyland movie, happily ever after ending tale. Love is not a fuzzy feeling. Love is calculated action. Love is sacrificial service. Certainly love has emotion, but it is emotion filled with knowledge and discernment as we see Paul pray that their love will be tagged with ultimately, we learn what love is. We learn how to love by looking at how God has loved us. So, Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us. So, he's going to show us what it is. He shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ had a fuzzy feeling for us. No. Christ died for us, right? Action, here we see love full of sacrifice and service and action. God's love is not simply a feeling. The text doesn't say God fills his love for us. It says he shows his love for us in action, willful and sacrificial service. He went to the cross and died. He rose from the grave, which means husbands and wives, a side note here, which means after the honeymoon's over and after years of marriage gets hard, Your love doesn't end when you don't feel it anymore. Your love perseveres because it's a covenantal, keeping, sacrificial, serving action that keeps you going, not the feeling of love. This is what Paul hopes these believers will be abounding in. Abounding gives this picture of overflowing. their love will be overflowing. Have you ever opened a bottle of ketchup and you just had to work so hard just shaking it or, or pounding it on the table so that you could get some out versus opening a bottle of ketchup and it, it just explodes everywhere on you, right? And we've all had that encounter. This is, this is what Paul wants their love to be doing, their love and their knowledge and discernment. He wants it to be exploding, abounding, overflowing, This is where I get the point. True Christians grow in Christlikeness because growing in love and knowledge and discernment is growing to be like Christ. These are true marks of Christ. We are growing in the fruit of Christ as we're going to see in a, in our text in just a moment. Paul wants the believers abounding and growing in this Christlikeness. And my question for you today is are you growing in these? Is your life characterized by love for God first and, and love for others? Are you like the ketchup bottle that people have to just shake any type of love out of you? Or are you just exploding, abounding with love as you come in contact with people? Are you increasing in your knowledge of God and His ways? Are, have you mastered God at this point in your life already? Are you growing in discernment? Or does does patience seem to frustrate you? Does gathering all the facts before acting annoy you? Are you quick to listen, slow to speak? See, when we grow in love, knowledge, and discernment, we are becoming like Christ because when we act as he acts and we believe what he says and we make decisions that honor him. This is growing in Christ's likeness. This is true Christians growing in his likeness. Is this a mark of your life? And why is that growth necessary? Again, why does the in-between matter? He wants them to abound in love and knowledge and discernment. Look at the beginning of verse 10. So that you may approve what is Excellent. This is the second point from our text. First, true Christians grow in Christlikeness. Second, true Christians grow in Christlikeness in order to honor God. There's a purpose for Paul wanting the believers to abound in love, knowledge, and discernment. There's a purpose. And what is it? The first two words of verse 10 is the connection. So that I want you to abound in love, knowledge, and discernment. Why? So much of interpreting Scripture and understanding Scripture, so much of it is is learning to ask the right questions and seeing the connecting words of how it's answered. I want you to abound in love, knowledge, and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. What does it mean to approve what is excellent? Every day, almost every moment of your life brings decisions to be made by you either consciously or subconsciously, in all areas of life. What time will I get up? What will I eat for breakfast? What will I wear today? What lane will I drive into work? Will I go to work? What about lunch? What about dinner? What about church? What about, are we staying for preaching? Will I stay awake in preaching? Life is full of decisions that you constantly have to decide on and at the same time, this world and our sinful flesh are simultaneously simultaneously vying for our attention, our desires, our approval. And how will we handle our temptations, our money, our time, our commitments, our desires, our responsibilities, our schedules? I mean, life being full of decisions is a nightmare for an indecisive person. And life being full of decisions will eat alive a Christian who is not growing in Christlikeness. And Paul wants these believers to be growing in Christlikeness so that they can encounter and respond to the issues and the offerings of life with a measured wisdom, a discernment, a love to say yes to the good things and no to the things that dishonor God, to approve the excellent things and put aside that which is wasteful. So one way we approve the things in life that are excellent, the things in life that are honoring to God, one way we do this is by asking the question, what will honor God most right now? So whatever decision you're facing, if you could pause for a second and ask, what will honor God most right now? 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Meaning, your life should be filled with decisions and actions that honor God in everything you do. And isn't it true? A lot of times in our life decisions, we ask, Is this a sin or am I allowed to do this? Instead of, What will we'll honor God most right now? Honoring God in life doesn't mean you get as close to the line as possible without going over. And too often we ask, am I free to do this? Is it a sin if I do this? Am I allowed to do this? Will I have forgiveness if I do this? Instead of asking, will this honor God? See, we love flirting with the line so long as our conscience can feel clean about not completely stepping over it. Honoring God doesn't mean we get as close to the line as possible without going over. Honoring God means we stay away from the dangerous line altogether. instead of asking am i allowed to do this what if we asked what will honor god most for the christian life is not about what we can get away with for the christian life is about how can we maximize our decision making so that in everything i'm deciding it's pleasing to the lord constantly glorifying God approving what is excellent and this this doesn't rob joy in your life as many would think many think oh I don't want to I don't want to live the Christian life because it just robs me of joy no the exact opposite is true when we live a life that honors the Lord we live life to the fullest of maximum joy so I ask my kids all the time what will make you most happy in life because they're going to be searching for it. You're, you're searching for it. What will make me happy in life? What will make us most happy in life is living a life that honors the Lord. Honoring God is encountering the issues and offerings of life and wisely approving of and choosing that which is excellent to God as opposed to that which is dishonoring to God. So this is what Paul means, he says, that he wants them growing in love, knowledge, and sermon so that they can approve what is excellent, so they can approve what will honor God in all of their life. True Christians grow in Christ-likeness in order to honor God, so that, as the text says, to approve what is excellent. Now this sermon could stop right there, we'd have a great truth to take home with us talk about over lunch. We live lives to grow in Christ to honor God. It could stop there. Problem is Paul's logic doesn't stop there in the text. What is the result of one who grows in Christ-likeness and honors God with their decisions? What is the end of Paul's logic? So the main point I said was true Christians grow in Christ likeness in order to honor God to be pure and blameless before Christ. I've shown where it, we see in the text about growing in Christ likeness and honoring God but where do, I, where do I get this pure and blameless before Christ? Look at verse 10 and 11. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So first, Christians grow in Christ-likeness. Second, true Christians grow in Christ-likeness in order to honor God. And third, Christ, true Christians grow in Christ-likeness in order to honor God to be pure and blameless before Christ. Now don't miss Paul's logic here. This is the end of his logic in this prayer. He said, I'm praying that you will grow in your love, knowledge, and discernment. Why? So that you can approve what is excellent. To what end, Paul. To be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now that's huge. It's it's huge because it just raised the stakes. We're not just talking about growing in godliness. We're not just talking about trying to live lives for Christ and be more godly. Who wouldn't want those things theoretically? The stakes have just been raised by Paul because he says our growing in Christ is a critical role and it plays a critical role in being pure and blameless before Christ. Now that's an uncomfortable statement. That's what the text says. Growing in Christ and godliness plays a critical role in being pure and blameless before Christ one day. And what does he mean? Does he mean that my good works somehow make me clean before Christ? Does he mean that I can reach perfection in this life? And I would answer no to both of those. So what does he mean? The text tells us, verse 11, Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To be pure and blameless here means you have a life that is filled with the fruit of righteousness. But not your own righteousness and your own strength, but the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. And so this is how, this is how it works. When you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus, God declares you as righteous in his sight. Not because of your own righteousness, but because of Jesus' righteousness credited on your behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Your good works do not in any way contribute to your justification before God. however, Genuine faith in Jesus' atoning death and resurrection is never an empty or a dead faith. Meaning, it is a faith that produces good works. Genuine faith must lead to growing in Christlikeness. Always. Meaning, if your faith hasn't changed you, if your faith hasn't led you to grow in Christ, you don't have real faith. R.C. Sproul writes this, true faith will absolutely and necessarily yield the fruits of obedience and the works of righteousness. John Calvin, the great reformer of the 16th century, said this in opposition to the Catholic Church. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. Just as it is is the heat alone that warms the earth, but the heat is always accompanied with light. James and the biblical canon writes in James chapter two verse one so also faith by itself if it does not have works is dead. So to be clear The pure and blameless that Paul writes about in Philippians 1 chapter 10 means you are filled with the fruit of Christ. You have been given the righteousness of Christ and that righteousness grows more righteousness, daily fruit, daily living, growing in righteousness that all comes through Jesus Christ. So if you take Jesus out, all the fruit falls off. It's not your own work. This is righteousness coming from the righteousness of Christ that we grow in. But to also be clear, this real fruit, this real righteousness that you must grow in, it is a real righteousness that you grow in if your faith is genuine. God has declared you as righteous by placing your faith in Christ and as a result of that, there is real progressive personal righteousness for you to grow in now, presently. That you must grow in now, presently. This is, this is an important po- point. This is why I'm, I'm, I'm hammering it home, hopefully, so clearly in different ways. God gives us the righteousness of Christ and then we grow by his grace in personal progressive righteousness. The two are never separated. If you forsake one, you cannot legitimately have the other. If you do not have the righteousness of Christ, you cannot have the fruit that comes as a result from him. And if you do not have the fruit of Christ, then you are not in Christ. The fruit does not save us. God's grace through faith in Christ alone saves us but that is a faith that leads to genuine fruits of godliness some of you may be thinking just slow down oh wait a minute yeah I mean you're talking talking big categories here <laughs> you saying that how I live my life now really matters for my salvation are you saying that I must grow in holiness in order to go to heaven Friend, not only am I saying it, God Almighty says it. How are we supposed to deal with verses like this? Hebrew 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. John 8, 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, so now walk in him. Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. What are we to do with scripture like that other than interpret that by God's grace, as a result of our faith in him, the righteousness that he's already given us, that we grow in holiness, a holiness that we will not see the Lord without. If we are his true disciples, we will abide in his word. If we have received Christ, we will walk in Him. If we are saved by Christ, we will endure to the end. And this is the overwhelming theme of Scripture. True disciples of Christ persevere in their faith and have lives filled with fruit of genuine faith. And there are, there are scores of people in the church... All over, scores of people in the church today that have no category to process this full view of salvation that Scripture presents. All they've ever been taught is pray a prayer and you're set for eternity. And my fear is there's a large group of professing Christians who believe it doesn't ultimately matter at all how you live in this life as long as you made a profession of faith at some point, as long as you walked an aisle at church or you you prayed a prayer or you accepted Jesus into your heart, it doesn't matter what you do with your life. And this is called easy believism, where all that matters is that you believed at one point, doesn't matter what the rest of your life looks like, you can trust that you have fire security forever. And brothers and sisters, that view of salvation simply isn't true. And it's not true because the Bible indicates otherwise. And yet, there are are scores of people, especially in the Bible Belt, who are being deceived by an easy believism that says, live however you want and still be saved so long as you made a decision, walk denial, pray to prayer, or ask Jesus into your heart. Listen to what Billy Graham once said, the great evangelist of our day, quote, it should not be surprising if people believe easily in a God who makes no demands. For this is not the God of the Bible. Satan has cleverly misled people by whispering that they can believe in Jesus Christ without being changed. It is a lie from Satan that twists God's word and gives false security to a multitude of people, end quote. So our salvation is not ultimately dependent upon the decision that we made in history. Our salvation is ultimately dependent upon a Savior who redeems us in history. Genuine salvation, according to the scriptures. Genuine salvation is a work of God by which His Spirit changes a person's heart. And that person, as a result of a changed heart, responds in repentance and faith, which leads to a changed life filled with joyful obedience and fruitful sacrifice, fruitful labor, fruits of righteousness, full of dependence upon God's grace, ultimately culminating in eternal security with God forever. This is the full view of salvation in the scripture. Not a decision upon ourselves that's ultimately hinged upon, but a a trust in a savior who radically changes our hearts and lives. And, and, And Paul is so clear that he wants them to grow in this love and knowledge and discernment. He wants them to grow in Christ so that they can honor God to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And I'll close with this this morning. I'll just ask you to consider in your own heart, has there been a time where you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ? And many of you would say, yes, there has been. I would also ask you this then, since doing that, have you seen significant change in your life as a result? Have you seen a change in your desires? Has your love for God and His Word increased? Or or tragically, has your life stayed the same by and large as it once always was? Does your life look any different now after conversion than before? Friend, I would not be loving you well if I encouraged you last week and gave you a false security and did not tell you this week. If you have not had a change of life as a result of encountering God and placing your faith in Him, if you have not had a change of life, Scripture indicates that you haven't truly trusted in Christ. If you're not growing in Christ, you're not in Christ. No matter what, what aisle we walked. Today can be the true day of salvation for you if you are broken over your sin, if you are grieved in your heart over a rebellion that you have done against the God who made you. Today can be the salvation where you say, I've I've depended upon a decision for far too long and not depended upon a savior. And you can place your trust in him today. I had to split up this text, verses 3 through 11, into two sermons because of time. But here's what we see overall from last week and this week about our salvation. The salvation that God delivered to you at some point in the past is the salvation that he will secure for you for all eternity. And it's the salvation that he means for you to walk in right now. And that present ongoing salvation is absolutely necessary. You take out that link and it, 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 it's, it's not genuine. If you are a true follower of Christ, God will see to it that he perseveres you in the in-between so that you reach the eternal. God decisively saved, God progressively sanctifies, and God eternally secures. This is the unbreakable 3 link chain of salvation in Scripture. And ultimately, because it's all of his work, he gets the glory, as Paul concludes the very last line in our text, to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you will awaken us... Um, to the full view of Scripture on salvation. That is a work from your hand whereby you change our heart, lead us to repentance and faith, sanctify us in your truth, and lead us home. Thank you for the grace that has saved us, the grace that sanctifies us, and the grace that will secure us. And I pray that if there is anyone here, Lord, that has not trusted in you genuinely, I pray that today would be the day of salvation and you would so prick their heart that they would respond in repentance and faith and cry out to you right in their seat for the glory and praise of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna have a, a time of reflection. Uh, the, the, crew, the, the team's gonna be playing. I just invite you to reflect upon what we've learned in the scripture and then we're gonna have our time of response time of reflection, I just encourage you to think maybe you've heard this today and and you've realized that you for far too long have relied upon a decision, that you've never trusted in a Savior, that you've never had your life truly changed. If that's the case for you today, let right now in your seat cry for repentance and faith in Christ and it will be yours. He will change your life radically. For others of you, I pray that this will encourage you to press on in your faith So, as we sit and reflect, let us then stand and worship the God who does all of this work in our hearts. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.